Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. It's Friday, January 20th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how did whales get so big anyways? Plus, a new study claims coffee pods are more environmentally friendly than regular filter coffee. Is it true? Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. I finally watched Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio the other night, the new dark stop-motion adaptation of the classic Italian story that is sweeping the animation categories at all the award shows right now, and for good reason. It is a seriously impressive feat of animation, but also a really effective story with a decent amount of creepiness, as you'd expect from Del Toro. I did a longer segment on this dark adaptation and the history of Pinocchio last summer, so link in the show notes if you want to listen back. But one particular scene that struck me was when some of the characters get swallowed by a giant whale-like sea monster. Now, I am aware that whales are big, and that this was a fictional representation of a fictional type of sea monster, so accurate proportions were not exactly what they were going for here, but it still blew my mind how cavernous the inside of that sea monster's belly was. A whole ship, and even in this case a lighthouse, were inside of it with plenty of room to spare. And you know, animation and fantasy aside, it just got my mind on a tangent about how inconceivably huge real whales are. Blue whales specifically aren't just the biggest animals on Earth right now, they're the biggest animals that have ever been on Earth that we know of. Blue whales can reach about 100 feet long, and while some sauropods got that long, they only weighed about a third as much as blue whales do. Blue whales clock in at 150 tons or more. As a 2014 article from science writer Riley Black put it, quote, Living exclusively at sea for more than 40 million years has freed whales from the evolutionary engineering constraints that land creatures, including dinosaurs, suffered. Thanks to water's buoyancy, whales can be far heavier without collapsing on themselves, end quote. But blue whales, and all whales, weren't always so big. Quoting Reuters, Cetaceans, the marine mammal group encompassing whales, dolphins, and porpoises, evolved around 50 million years ago from vaguely wolf-like land-based ancestors that belonged to a mammalian assemblage called artiodactyls that includes today's cows, pigs, sheep, and many others, end quote. And that ancient land-based ancestor was only about five and a half feet long. Over time, some of its descendants adapted to living in water, and in the case of blue whales, exploding in length by a factor of 20. We know that part of these changes were likely a result of an increase in ocean nutrients, as well as the aforementioned buoyancy. 
But a recent study published last week in the journal Scientific Reports looked into the role that genetics played in whales' giant size. Quoting the New York Times, Lead author Mariana Neri and her team took advantage of the fact that humans have long studied the genes that affect body size in some of whales' closest relatives, like horses, sheep, and cows. When comparing nine of these body size-related genes across 19 whale species of different sizes, the researchers found evidence of positive natural selection in four genes. That is, there were changes in DNA that correlated with a bigger body. End quote. Now, those four genes are, quoting Reuters, GHSR, which is a gene involved in releasing growth hormone through the pituitary gland, body weight, energy metabolism, appetite, and fat accumulation. It's also associated with controlling cell proliferation and programmed cell death. Tumors, essentially, are formed by runaway cell growth. There is also IGFBP7, which is a gene involved in promoting cell growth and division. There's evidence that it acts as a cancer suppressor in prostate, breast, lung, and colorectal tumors. NCAPG, a gene associated with growth in people, horses, donkeys, cattle, pigs, and chickens, is linked to increased body size, weight gain, cell proliferation, and cell life cycles. And PLAG1, a gene associated with body growth in cattle, pigs, and sheep, and is involved in embryo growth and cell survival. End quote. So that the team found positive natural selection for all four of those means that there's a chance these were among the genes responsible for whales developing gigantism over the millennia. Though both the team and other experts caution that this is just a first step, not a definitively identifiable cause. The team also points out that some of those genes related to cancer suppression may have developed in concert with the body size ones because being as huge as these whales are, advantageous as it may be in scaring off predators, does come with an increased risk of cancer. Simply put, the more cells there are in a body means the more cell divisions, which means the more chances for cancer to develop. But since whales curiously don't develop cancer as much as one might expect, it could be that these genes are the reason. Dr. Michael McGowan, a biologist at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History who is not involved in this study, thinks pursuing this line of study could help us zero in on certain genes related to slowing down cancer progression. But again, he emphasized to the Times that this was all just a first step and not a definitive answer. Though there was one more interesting finding from the study, quoting again from the Times, one result that the team wasn't expecting came from a gene called EGF, or epidermal growth factor, or rather, from the lack of it. The EGF gene of the biggest whales, the filter-feeding baleen whales, has become non-functional over evolutionary time, turning into what scientists call a pseudogene. In addition to size, EGF is also important for the development of teeth, which baleen whales don't have. It's not clear when EGF became a pseudogene in the ancestor of baleen whales, Dr. Neary said, but we can infer it was related to the emergence of lunge feeding, the way baleen whales scoop up huge mouthfuls of plankton, end quote, or huge mouthfuls of lying wooden puppets and their friends. Mother's Day is almost here. 
and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone knows that coffee pods are bad for the environment. Research conducted by a coffee pod company a few years back found that an estimated 39,000 pods are produced globally every minute, and 29,000 of those end up in landfills, where they can take up to 500 years to decompose. The city of Hamburg even banned coffee pods from state-run buildings back in 2016, and the inventor of the Keurig and its K-Cups, John Sylvan, who left the company in the 90s not long after inventing it, told The Atlantic several years ago that he sometimes feels bad he ever invented it. Now, to be fair to his conscience, he isn't solely responsible for the invention of the coffee pod. The first one was developed by Eric Favre, the founder of Nespresso in the late 70s, and as many as 250 different patents building off of his have been submitted over the years. And perhaps to lessen Sylvan's guilt even more, a new study has come out indicating that coffee pods might actually be more environmentally friendly than regular filter coffee. And it's not even the first study to come to those results. A 2019 study at the University of Bath found that filter coffee had a worse impact on the environment than coffee pods, as did a study earlier from KTH Stockholm and one from Qantas. Barista Maxwell Colonna Dashwood, who was involved in the University of Bath study, told Wired back in 2019 that it's frustrating that there are so many studies proving drip coffee is worse for the environment than pods, but that the broader public simply doesn't take notice. He said, quote, So a lot of work is going into making capsules more sustainable because there's a sales opportunity in making them more sustainable as people think they're bad, and not because that's actually a really unsustainable sustainable way of drinking coffee. It's all very ironic, he said, end quote. Okay, so why are coffee pods more environmentally friendly then? Most of these studies point out that when we think about coffee pods, we're only focusing on the packaging waste, maybe on the impact of manufacturing all of those pods, but mostly we're thinking about all those pods being thrown away every day. 
What we should really be thinking about is the overall life cycle of each different type of coffee preparation. The most recent study, the one from the University of Quebec, looked at the agricultural production of coffee beans, transportation, roasting and grinding, pod or capsule manufacturing, heating the coffee and water in your home, water and coffee use and waste, water, heat, and electricity use in cleaning up, and how much at the end of all that goes to the landfill. In addition to single-serve coffee pods and drip or filter coffee, like the kind you might make a big pot of in a Mr. Coffee, they also looked at brewed coffee in a French press and instant coffee. From there, they additionally compared two different methods of preparation, by the recommended amounts and using extra amounts of coffee and water as people tend to do. And they looked at those methods in two different provinces, Alberta, which is a high-carbon electricity production province, and Quebec, where, for example, such developments as hydroelectricity mean that tasks like washing a coffee cup in a dishwasher have a negligible carbon impact. And the results? Filter coffee had the highest carbon footprint every time. French press usually came in second, and coffee pods and instant coffee duked it out for the most environmentally friendly. The difference often lies in whether a person is using the recommended amount of coffee and water for each method of preparation or not. Instant coffee wins out so easily, largely due to the low amount of coffee required, the lack of organic waste created by the process, and the lower electricity consumption of a kettle compared to a coffee maker. Although I believe this study was conducted using an electric kettle. Most people in the U.S. have stovetop kettles, which could use more electricity if it is an electric stove, or if they're gas-powered, emit even more carbon dioxide. Coffee makers use a lot of energy, though, to heat up the water and then keep the coffee pot warm as it sits there. But going back to the amount of water and coffee required, this is the big reason coffee pods win out. Not only do they require less of both compared to filter coffee and French press, but you can't accidentally add too much coffee to a coffee pod. It's a set amount. And some machines even have you just pour in your coffee mug's worth of water for each brew, thereby ensuring even the water is kept exactly as recommended each time. But the researchers offer one caveat. Because the pods are so convenient, it might lead people to as much as double their coffee consumption, quote, thus making this environmental advantage redundant, end quote. If you already use, or based on this information, are thinking about switching to a single-serve pod-based coffee or espresso maker, there are some things that you can do to make the process even more environmentally friendly. Try using reusable pods, for one. They still help you with the control of how much coffee you use, but you don't have to throw it away each time. Bonus points if you compost the coffee grounds. Or if you have a Keurig or a Nespresso, you can participate in their recycling programs. Now, while both companies have now switched to pods made out of more easily recyclable materials, the pods are still going to slip through the cracks of a lot of local recycling programs. So Nespresso offers bags that you can order and fill up with 100 or 200 pods and then ship them back or drop it off at a participating store. Keurig also has a mail-back program. Though, as Wired pointed out a few years ago, the overlap in people who buy a Keurig for its convenience and are willing to go through all these extra steps for recycling is probably pretty slim. 
And at the end of the day, though, while we should all be mindful and take what steps we can, the biggest contributor to the carbon footprint by far, no matter what method of preparation is used, is the production of the coffee itself. Quoting the researchers in a write-up published in The Conversation, Regardless of the type of coffee preparation, coffee production is the most greenhouse gas-emitting phase. It contributed to around 40% to 80% of the total emission, and there are many reasons for this. The coffee plant is a small, stunted tree or shrub that was traditionally grown in the shade of the forest canopy. The modernization of the sector led to the transformation of many coffee plantations into vast fields that were exposed to the sun. This added the need for intensive irrigation, fertilization systems, and the use of pesticides. This mechanization, irrigation, and use of nitrous oxide-emitting fertilizers, the production of which requires large quantities of natural gas, greatly contribute to coffee's carbon footprint. More than half of the carbon footprint of coffee comes from the steps taken by coffee producers and suppliers. They must take action to reduce the environmental and social impacts of coffee production. End quote. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.